over, over here. Okay, now. Okay. You could probably hear me anyway without this, but uh, this might help some of those who need the extra help. So <clears throat> uh, pick, pick up a sheet of paper back there on the stool if you haven't done so already. That's what we're going to be looking at in a little bit before we get to that, uh, <clears throat> to that uh, discussion that's on that sheet there. Uh, we want to look a little bit more at the chapter 1 of Isaiah. And before we uh, begin doing that, let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're so grateful that we can come here this morning and to take a few moments out of our various activities, what we've been doing through the week and what we plan to do in this, uh, the rest of this week. We're thankful that uh, we have a place that we can assemble and uh, give our attention to things of a spiritual nature. We pray that you'll be with us in our discussion this morning, that uh, you'll open our our hearts and our minds to the truths that are contained in your word. And uh, first of all, we're thankful for your word, that the message of salvation that it provides, and we're thankful for the opportunity to uh, give attention to your word from time to time. We ask your presence to be with us and with the other classes as they also study your word, that things that are taught will be useful and helpful for all of us as we work together to strive to do your will. We pray that you'll accept our thanks for your holy word and especially for your, your word, Jesus, who came into this world to become a human being, become as man in flesh, the, the word in flesh, as we say. And we are thankful that he was willing to give his life in, in our behalf, that we can have the remission of our sins. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, as we tried to emphasize last week that this very first chapter of Isaiah can be regarded as somewhat as an introduction to the entire book of Isaiah because this, uh, uh, some of the major themes that are, uh, that are referred to in the book of Isaiah are mentioned right here in this very first chapter. A couple of things that we didn't get to uh, before our class ended last week. Toward the uh, middle part, the end of the chapter, we'll look at that, and then we'll look at the, uh, uh, at, go on in, into chapter 2. But uh, <clears throat> notice that we were trying to emphasize the idea that the people there seemed to think that they could please God by their sham worship, by their outward activities of worship that they thought that they can please God. But uh, <clears throat> God was not accepting their worship because the way that they were living from day to day. Um, verse 16 of that first chapter, Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. And then he tells them what they should be doing. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And this is a theme that he keep, seems, to be, uh, seems to keep coming back to over and over again throughout, uh, throughout his book. And then he has uh, uh, this great invitation uh, to come. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, 
They shall be like wool. This is perhaps one of the more familiar passages found in the book of Isaiah because of the song that we see. How many of you know that song that's based on, on, on these uh, verses here? Uh, Though your sins be a scar, I, I'm, I, I'm sure most of you probably are, are probably uh, familiar with it. Um, the song written by <clears throat> Fanny Crosby took up these thoughts, these words, these ideas and added a few verses of her own to the song. So, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be, uh, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Uh, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as. Uh, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They shall be as white as snow. Then, these are the additional words that she's added to to those verses. Hear the voice that entreats you, O return ye unto God. And that's repeated again. He is, the great com- he is of great compassion and of wondrous love. And then an- another uh, a verse that she's added to those words. He'll forgive your transgressions and remember them no more. He'll forgive your transgressions and remember them no more. Look unto me, ye people, saith the Lord your God. He'll forgive your transgressions and uh, remember them no more. So <clears throat> Fanny Crosby uh, took these words here from Isaiah and uh, wrote a song with, uh, about it and adding a few words of it, her own to it. Um, but notice that uh, the next verse, verse 19, the conditions that are mentioned that uh, need to be followed in order to have your sins uh, removed and your sins become white as snow and become like wool is if you are willing and obedient. All the way through here, you're going to fe- see that uh, promises are given if, if the conditions that are laid down in order to receive these promises. But if you resist and rebel, uh, last week we talked about the idea of rebellion and how often that is repeated. In this first chapter, and also at the very end of the book, you have, the, uh, again, the idea of the people rebelling. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. <clears throat> Someone has suggested that the, uh, these words here could, could be put in the form of a chiasmus. Uh, you will eat the best from the land, or, this, or the sword will eat you, is somewhat of the idea that is expressed here. Okay, before we go, go on in this chapter, uh, let's go all the way back toward the end of the book of Isaiah to chapter 58. And you'll see how similar what he says here uh, toward the end of his book. Uh, uh, the very same thing, the idea that people are trying to please God by their sham worship activities or their sham, uh, sham devotions, uh, specifically here in this, this case, in this situation, chapter 58, has to do with fasting. And uh, what he uh, proposes uh, that should be the true type of fasting Let's, let's read through these verses, uh, not the whole, whole chapter, but down, down through a few of these verses, beginning with verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 58. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion. Here you see again the uh, theme of rebellion. 
and to the house of Jacob their sins, for day after day they seek me out. See, they're seeking him out from day to day. They want to try to please God, but are they very successful in doing it? They seem eager to know my ways, and if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God, they ask me for just decisions, and seem, they seem eager for God to come near them. They seem, see, they seem, they're trying to please God by their activity, but they seem eager for God. Why have we fasted, they say. Now, these are the words that the, they, the, they are saying. Why have we fasted? What good does it do to fast? And you have not seen it. Why have, you humbled your, uh, why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the, yet, now this is the contrast here. It says yet, you see the word yet there. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Here you see the emphasis upon what they are doing, what you want to do. Last week we talked about the idea how the second person plural is used through here. where Your feasts and your prayers and your, it's what you are doing. And here it says that you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and open your voice to be heard on high and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for... Bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes. Is that what you call a fast? See, it's what you call a fast. It's your activities that you have, uh, have been following. A day acceptable to the Lord. Now he goes on to say, now this is what God really would like to see from his people. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke, is is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them. And not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. And your healing will quickly appear. So here again you see the contrast between their efforts in trying to please God by their fasting in this case. And uh, what, what they are neglecting in the, their activities from day to day and what they should, should be following. Okay, well that, that's another example of the same sort of idea that... He is. Uh, he brought forth here at the very beginning of the of the book, is repeated here again in chapter fifty eight toward the end end of the book. <clears throat> Let's go on and, and look at the rest of these verses at the last half of uh, chapter one, in which he describes the condition of the uh, city as as he sees it there, how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. 
Your choice vine is diluted with water. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels. Here again, you see the repetition of the idea of rebelling against God. Companions of thieves, they all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fathers. The widow's case does not come before them. Here again, you see reference to the widows and the orphans and how they're being neglected. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove your impurities. I will restore your judges as the days of old, your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Now, this uh, somewhat introduces us into the next chapter that we'll look at here in just, in just a few moments. But this is a, a promise of restoration, a promise uh, of uh, renewal. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks. Now, this is uh, obviously referring to their idol worship. Um, uh, their sacred oaks are uh, places where they uh, uh, participated in the various uh, pagan rites. <clears throat> you will be dis- disgraced because the gardens that you have chosen, the gardens where they practice their immoral uh, idol worship. You will be like an oak with uh, fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become, under his work, a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. We mentioned last week that this word quench is also repeated in the very last verse of the whole book, chapter 66, the very last verse. You have reference here to the quench quench of the fire, which it says the fire will not be quenched, which we suggest that... uh, that kind of form a kind of an inclusio that ties the whole book together by the reference to rebels and also to the reference to the quench the uh, uh, fire not being quenched so okay <clears throat> so that's uh, the first chapter is kind of an introduction to the main themes that are found throughout the the book and we'll uh, be coming back to these uh, as we go through the book and see how they they are repeated but let's go on and look at this uh, next chapter, chapter 2, <clears throat> that um, gives us a, 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 a picture of what is referred to as the mountain of the Lord. And the sheet that, um, I hope everyone has a copy of it, that is on the stool back there, where we see the comparison between this uh, chapter, chapter 2 of Isaiah, and chapter 4 of Micah. And you see how closely... Uh, these two passages are related to each other. Uh, first of all, you, you'll notice uh, at the top of the page, the um, opening verse of both of these uh, books, Isaiah and Micah, seem to begin pretty much the same way. They mention that, uh, <clears throat> that the kings uh, uh, in which these uh, prophets live, that they're, they're <clears throat> uh, essentially the same. The only thing is that Micah does not mention Isaiah. Isaiah mentions Isaiah, uh, Uzziah, Uzziah is mentioned, 
as in the days of Uzziah. But Micah does not mention that at all. That's because in chapter 6 of Isaiah, we'll see that, uh, that Isaiah received his call. In the year that Uzziah died... So this might seem to indicate that Isaiah was a little bit older or began his prophetic career a little bit sooner than did Micah. The Micah came a little bit later because Micah does not mention Isaiah at all, which might suggest that by the time Micah wrote, Isaiah was already dead. He had already passed on. Whereas Isaiah said that in the year that Isaiah died, that he received this vision from from God and got his call from God. And uh, Isaiah, of course, responded by saying, Here am I, send me. Okay, let's look at these uh, comparisons. The comparisons between Isaiah and Micah. If you just read down through there, back and forth between the two, you can see how closely they resemble each other. Now, if you were a teacher in school and you assigned a paper for the students to write, a term paper, and you got back two papers from two different students that sounded this closely together, what would you think? In fact, I I, uh, had an experience exactly like this. Marilyn's father was a a preacher for a good number of years, and when he retired from preaching, he went back to school and got his master's degree, and then he taught at Fried Hardeman University for several years, taught Bible at Fried Hardeman. And um, when we were visiting him on one occasion, he was in the process of grading uh, some papers, some term papers from uh, a class that he had taught. He asked me to uh, read through some of these papers, and I came across two papers that started off exactly the same, used the same terminology, used the same words almost uh, and uh, the obvious uh, indication was that, well, someone's copying from someone here. I called this to his attention, and he said he would look into it. And afterwards, some uh, sometime after that, I learned that both of these students were expelled from the school. Well, does this mean that we need to expel Isaiah and Micah from the Bible? Because they they seem to be so closely related to each other. Some have suggested that this suggests that one must have copied from the other. And uh, the question is, though, who wrote first? Well, some, some uh, would indicate that Isaiah was the first one to write, the, write this passage. Then uh, Micah came along and, and uh, kind of followed along the same idea and used the same words. We suggested that uh, Isaiah and Micah may have known each other because they lived at the same time. And they worked in the same area. You notice that uh, Isaiah says that uh, concerning uh, Judah and Jerusalem, uh, Micah says uh, uh, concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, Samaria being the capital of the northern kingdom. And uh, Isaiah, even though he does not mention uh, the northern kingdom specifically, he does on several occasions refer to the northern kingdom uh, and uh, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. So uh, the uh, <clears throat> subject of both of these uh, prophets seemed to be pretty similar to each other. They dealt with the same sort of people, lived at the same sort of time. So <clears throat> it has been suggested that, well, obviously one of them copied from the other. Well, how would you explain the similarities between these uh, so closely resembling each other? 
<laughs> okay, okay. Okay. I think that's pr- <clears throat> However, they got the uh, got the message that they have here. It was gotten by revelation or by inspiration. Um, can you think of anything in the New Testament that's similar to this? It is usually believed that the Gospel of Mark was the first gospel to be written. And that the other Gospels base their Gospels upon the uh, record that Mark wrote. Uh, Matthew, for example, uh, uh, parallels pretty much a a lot of the things that are mentioned in Mark. And the the modern critical theory about the composition of the Gospel is, well, Mark wrote first, then Matthew came along and read Mark and copied from Mark and wrote his Gospel and added a few additional things to it and so on. But, uh, again, as Vanna mentioned, it was by inspiration. However, they went about getting, you remember Luke, at the beginning of his gospel, said that he investigated many sources in the composition of his gospel. So he used sources, he used other materials, but whatever materials he used, whatever sources he used, it was by the guidance of the Holy Spirit that God directed them to write down what he wanted to be written down. So it could be that uh, maybe on some occasion that uh, Isaiah and Micah got together and they discussed their work and they talked about what they've been doing and what they've been saying and, and what, they were, uh, what their message was and that uh, uh, somehow that they sound that they were pretty much uh, uh, saying the same thing. And uh, <clears throat> they do, though, recognize that... Uh, it was the words of the Lord that they were writing and what they were communicating. So by divine inspiration, um, they were able to write what God wanted them to write, whether it was completely different from one another or writing pretty much the same thing that God wanted them to write. <clears throat> so we have this... Uh, <clears throat> This description of uh, what is going to take place in the last days, you know, is the first, uh, uh, first few lines here are practically word for word uh, from each other. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. Uh, that's the, uh, the theme then of this second chapter of Isaiah and uh, uh, Micah chapter 4, of course, is the same, pretty much the same. So we'll talk about this. First of all, the question is, in the last days, you know, both of them use that expression, in the last days. Well, the first question we might have is, what are the last days? What are the last days that he's referring to here? <clears throat> uh, a lot of people take this as an indication of what's going to take place at the end of the world, at the end of the days, at the, uh, the, the end, end of human life. These are the things that are going to take place. The premillennial approach to this, uh, uh, this chapter is that the last days referring to what is going to happen at the end of the church age, at the end of the Christian age, when Christ comes to this earth to establish his kingdom and begin his 1,000-year reign here on earth, then these are the last days, the days of the millennium 
uh, as they are called. But let's see how the Scriptures uh, understand what is meant by the last days. And fortunately, we do have a direct definition of what the last days are in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 28. You remember the story of Daniel, how Daniel interpreted the the dream of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. And uh, he, he said that in your dream you saw, uh, saw this, this image, and he uh, said that the, <clears throat> the uh, image represents four empires. And at the end of these uh, uh, four empires, uh, certain things are going to take, take place in these last days. Now, those four empires that he mentions are the, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. And he says that in these last days, that that means during the Roman Empire, these things are to take place. So the events in the latter days were events that would take place during the period of the Roman Empire. And this is how it is understood in the New Testament, because we read, for example, in Acts chapter 2, how Peter, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost there, in Jerusalem, uh, said that, uh, what is taking place there on that occasion was what was spoken by the prophet Joel that in the last days, and he, in, he understands what is taking place there is what is taking place in the last days. So Peter was in the last days. And I'm sure you're familiar with the verse in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, where it says that <clears throat> when God spoke to the um, uh, prophets in old times, the past in various ways and various manners, has spoken to us in these last days by his Son. So the last days were in existence at the time that uh, the writer Hebrews wrote, wrote this verse. So this is how it's uh, usually understood uh, uh, as referring to the last days, as the days uh, that uh, began in the Roman in time of the Roman Empire uh, in the city of Jerusalem when the church was established, and that this is referring to the church that was established in the last days. Um, how many of you have ever heard of Homer Haley? You know the name Homer Haley? Some, some of you do. Some of you, I dare, do I dare say some of you old timers <laughs> know about Homer, Homer Haley? Uh, <laughs> um. I asked Marilyn if, if she knew Homer Haley, and she said, Oh, yes, he slept in my bed. <laughs> and I need to explain what, what that was. Her father was a preacher, and now and then a, a visiting preacher would come by and, and stay with them, and she would have to give up her bed for the preacher to have a place to sleep. So uh, uh, in that way, <laughs> Homer Haley slept in, in her bed. Homer Haley... Uh, uh, was a preacher for Churches of Christ uh, for a number of years. He also taught Aveling Christian University for several years and also at Florida Christian University. And he wrote a commentary on the uh, book of Isaiah that's uh, uh, highly respected. In fact, James Burton Kaufman in his commentary on uh, Revelation referred to this as one of the best commentaries on the book of Isaiah to be found. He referred to it as the best commentary on Isaiah. And this is what he has to say about the last days that are mentioned here 
in Isaiah chapter 2. Let's see here. Let's see. I have it written down here. I'll just read it right here from here. The picture of four world empires and events that would take place during the last of them, Babylon, Medium, Persian, Roman, so the events in the latter days. So he says, therefore, the latter days spoken of by Isaiah are to be understood to be that period in which God would make known his law through Jesus Christ and send it forth from Jerusalem and from Zion. Isaiah is speaking of that which began on Pentecost and continues now. We are living in the last times. These are the latter days in which we are now living right now. We are living in the latter days, he says. So that's his understanding interpretation. I think that's the correct way to approach these verses. What we're going to be reading here is what is now taking place in these latter days. So let's see what it has to say about what is taking place now in these latter days. It says, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. Well, it was established, wasn't it? On the day of Pentecost, the church was established. It will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Well, we'll see how, uh, as we uh, read through the account of the establishment of the church and the spread of the church, that it did go to all nations, and all peoples uh, did become uh, members of this new kingdom. Uh, Isaiah goes on to say, Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in them. Uh, that uh, the law will go forth from Zion, uh, that is Jerusalem. The law will go forth from Jerusalem, and the law was preached on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And it went out from Jerusalem uh, to the uh, uh, other parts of the world. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem, you see, says right there. That identifies what Zion is. Zion is Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords and plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This is perhaps one of the more familiar passages in the whole book of Isaiah, this reference to worldwide peace. That is mentioned here, the beating of swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks has become a symbol of a worldwide peace uh, that people are, are longing for. But it's a wrong application in this verse to try to make this refer to peace in this world uh, among nations, this is referring to the peace that is to take place within the church. Um, we can see how that uh, when people come and accept the teachings of God in the church, <clears throat> this is the uh, temple that he's referring to here, that uh, <clears throat> the, word, uh, the word of God will go out from Zion, from Jerusalem, and as people come to the uh, church, and receive the word of God uh, that is proclaimed in the church, then they will uh, put these things into practice. In God's house, people will learn from the true God. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths, he says. So if a person goes to Zion, 
God himself will teach them. Uh, A person must be taught by God before he can walk in God's ways. So it takes both, uh, both the teaching and the walking together in order to respond to God's, God's message. Doctrine and ethics must go hand in hand. We mentioned last week the commentary by Edward J. Young, and, uh, and he uh, has a good description of uh, the combination of, of these. Let's see. Yeah, it's this uh, one right here, I believe it is. Yeah, 106. Doctrine and ethics must go hand in hand, he says. It should further be remarked that this teaching is not of a speculative or theoretical character, but rather is eminently practical. It produces righteousness. From this, the church must learn to teach in such a manner that her hearers will be edified and will have their thoughts turned to godliness. The Bible is through and through a practical book. And nowhere does it, its practical character appear more clearly than in this particular point that is described here, here in uh, Isaiah chapter 2. So that, uh, that is uh, how uh, some of the commentaries understand this, uh, this reference uh, here to the Word of the Lord going out from Zion and from Jerusalem, and that he will judge the nations by his word and will settle disputes for many peoples by what is taught in his word. Uh, They will beat their swords and plowshares and their spears and pruning hooks because the gospel is a peaceful gospel. It will bring peace to, to individuals. And as you recall, Paul says that Christ came into uh, this world and he preached peace to all nations, to all peoples. Um, God then is a judge between nations right now, not at the end of the church age or not during the millennium, but right now he is judging between nations. How does he judge between nations? Uh, By uh, the word being preached among the peoples of the world, he brings judgment upon the nations of the world. And in this way, when they learn that the message of God is a peaceful message, that they will turn from their warlike ways and pursue peace. <clears throat> this is a picture of universal peace, but a religiously founded peace. As a result of being taught the ways of God, God judges between nations through His Word. Insofar as men learn of the Lord and are taught of Him, they will seek to apply in their lives the principles uh, of His government. Consequently, even at the present day, in our day, today, Insofar as men believe the gospel and seek to practice it in their lives, their prophecy finds fulfillment. That, again, is a quotation for Edward Young and his commentary. Now, back to Homer Haley. He has something to say along these lines lines as, as well. And this is a pretty good way to summarize what Isaiah is doing here. 
not only Isaiah, but as you can see, Micah. Micah repeats the same message, almost word for word. And this is how he describes it, and I think he does a good way of explaining what is what being, uh, being taught here. The prophet points to the character of the citizens of the kingdom. They shall beat their swords and plowshares, their spears and pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn, learn war anymore. Here, Haley says, here the prophet is certainly not speaking of the world, not of the world. For his people will war continually, but rather of all nations and many peoples will come to the mountain of Jehovah's house, that is, the church. He is describing the character of the citizens of the new kingdom. In the holy mountain they will learn war no more. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, he says later on in chapter 11, verse 9. Isaiah is not describing a future situation in which the nations of the world will not fight wars. Wars will always be fought. He is describing the character of the kingdom of the latter days, the one to which the Hebrew saints had come. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 through 29, the writer says, You have come to a holy mountain, and that holy mountain is, is the church, and to which men of all nations may and do come today. Uh, it is therefore in his kingdom that the implements of war would be cut off. He would speak peace to the nations. This he did, as described in the Gospels by Paul. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to them who were nigh. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. Both Isaiah, and he also refers to Zechariah here, describes pretty much the same picture of the kingdom, the new kingdom, the kingdom that is under Christ. The new kingdom would not be extended or defended by weapons of carnal warfare. Its weapons are spiritual. And that uh, obviously is what uh, Isaiah is, is uh, getting to here, here, is that when people come to the mountain of the Lord, uh, when, when they uh, turn to God for their directions and for their instructions, that they will learn about peace. And as, as they put the... Uh, principles of peace that are taught in the Bible into action, then they will beat their swords and plowshares and their spears into, into pruning hooks. So that, uh, to me, seems to be what uh, Isaiah is uh, trying to get across here, and as, as is repeated in Micah as well. Um, <clears throat> notice that at the end, then, there's this... Uh, uh, Note of encouragement, of exhortation, verse 5. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And that is the invitation that is, left to, that is given to all mankind, that we should walk in the light of the Lord. And we learn about the light of the Lord by coming to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob where he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. So that's how we walk in his paths and how we walk in the light of the Lord. When we come to his house and are taught his ways in his house in the church. So this is one of those great passages in the Bible that 
that emphasizes the importance and significance of the church. This is a prophecy of the church and how that in the church, God's purpose for this world is fulfilled. Yes, Vanna? Yeah, there's, you see a slight difference here. And then, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yes, huh? Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, again, here, here is the, the idea of the choice that is given. You can choose. Uh, choose between here. Um, <clears throat> notice that Micah also adds a, a, a further description of uh, what life in this new kingdom, um, in the house of the Lord, is going to be like in verse 4 there in Micah, Micah verse 4. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree. No one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. <clears throat> so here we have a good description of what, uh, <clears throat> what God wants for his people in this world, but it's through the church in which this takes place, in his kingdom, in his house. All these references to the mountain of the Lord, the house of God, so on, are all pointing forward to the time when God will fulfill his purposes through the church. Okay. Any thoughts or comments about uh, <clears throat> about what is presented here in this picture of, uh, <clears throat> of the church and the mountain of the Lord and the house of God and so on? The rest of this chapter we'll reserve it, uh, until next week, in which uh, uh, <clears throat> a description of what is going to take place on the day of the Lord as as um, God responds to the actions of his people so our time is just about up for for this morning if no one else has anything else to add we'll go ahead and close and get ready for our worship service let's bow bow with the word of prayer and we'll close with a prayer again our father we're thankful that we have had this opportunity to come together and study your word and we pray that you'll Help us to take these words and these thoughts and to ponder them and to uh, apply them to our lives as we seek to do your will from day to day. Be with us now as we assemble to worship, that our worship will be acceptable in your sight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.